everyone. Welcome back to the Bad Vibes Club. This time I'm speaking to Mikey Harding. I spoke to Mikey in about spring of 2019. We spoke mainly about a project that he just finished, which was called Banger A Day, which is where he'd made a tune and a video for that tune every single day for about two months and uploaded them on Instagram. You can find Mikey's Instagram at m.j.harding um, and you can watch them for yourself. We also eventually got round to speaking about an idea for a project he has about making music that kind of interacts with bureaucracy. We spoke about the technical creative limitations of making music for Instagram. We spoke about football chants. And fairly early on, we get into some quite dark stuff about toxic masculinity, rape culture and shame. So just, I don't know if that's a warning for anyone, we get straight into it pretty quickly. But the first thing that we did was that we sat down and Mikey was really hungry. So he started eating an apple and talking about love addiction. What do you think about love addiction? I don't know if it could be truly called an addiction in the like... I guess only in capitalism could it be called an addiction. In other times it would just be like... A kind of pathological drive. Mm. What do you think about love addiction? Um, well, they say that lower poor poorer people get more addicted to substances, but middle class people is less culturally acceptable, and the conditions aren't quite right. So middle class people tend to get more addicted to interpersonal um, relationships. Mm. And the idea of love addiction is when it looks similar to love, but it has vast consequences, like it has costs. Mm. So an addiction is when you've, when you've got something that's got a short-term benefit, feels good, or it achieves some kind of short-term goal that usually has to do with like routine and safety and like dopamine hits. But then over the long term, you get a destruction of social relationships, friends, career mental health, you know, you can start getting depressed and all that stuff, eventually, like, potentially suicidal. Mm. So if you look at it on that matrix, then someone who gets into a relationship usually has, like, a really intense beginning bit, and then quite quickly the bits of their life will start going, boom, you know, they really stop seeing their friends, really, <laughs> oh, see really, stop, mean, yeah. really stop doing important things in their life, and they'll just end up with that person a lot. So that's not love addiction, that's just love, right? That's just what happens when you... Or that's the well, first whatever desire or lust or I think it depends on how intense it is I think there are still people who can have a relationship and more or less socialize their social life might go downhill a little bit yeah but I'd say it becomes an addiction when they're really like genuinely people are like where the fuck did that guy go <laughs> <laughs> like the guy at that band selfish cunt who is selfish cunt this isn't going in the podcast bro. selfish oh, cunt oh it's got to go in the podcast <laughs> we've been speaking for a uh... Like three minutes now. <laughs> Selfish Cunt were a really good band around the time of the Libertines. Yeah. And they were like the real version of the Libertines. As in, what do you mean? A lot more unstable musically. A lot less palatable on the radio. A lot more angry politically. Their head front man was a gay guy called Martin who was insanely beautiful and he looked a little bit like Pete Doherty and they were mates. Mm. The two were mates. But Martin had studied French mime or something. So when he performed, he was like an angel on stage. Just like there's nothing else you could imagine him doing with his life apart from being the front man of a really rowdy <laughs> band. And they used to play a lot of squat parties and stuff, right? 
I think all the other guys in it were quite old, like old punks with this young angelic gay guy, <laughs> and the the lyrics were smart, you know. But then, you know, they had an incredible following, and the, the you know he'd like piss himself on stage. That's what I mean compared to the libertines. But then the story is that you got in a relationship with this dude who became very, very protective. And that was the end of Selfish Cunt. Like, uh -huh. this isn't good for you, you can't do this. And, you know, he used to like, answer, he'd phone up Martin and this guy would answer the phone and tell you not to speak to him anymore. And he just kind of vanished, you know. And you sort of see him sometimes at parties. Yeah, and they've, they've never appeared again. So what? But then with addiction, people are never addicted to one thing. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Cause the problem with love addiction would not be being in like a long-term stable relationship that changed your life for maybe what you perceived as the better, mm. even if other people perceived it as not mm. as good. It would be the pathological aspects of it, the patterns, right? Like if you can't manage, like we, we might all be said to have a, a like a, what you were describing in the early stages of love is what the early stages of love are, mm. but the the like out upshot of that is that if you just keep repeating that early stages of like three months of intense relationship, that would be problematic. And then the life shut down. Yeah, exactly. And then so quit. your life is constantly shut down, but you're constantly moving between partners. Yeah. Only having that p first part of love. Yeah. Maybe. Whereas if you just get into like a long-term relationship, that means that you lose a few friends. I don't know. It just sounds like quite good. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I think we could all. I mean, I don't think anyone's, like, I'm in a long-term relationship, and I don't think anyone's asking where I Is am. Is this going in the podcast? Yeah. Fuck well, we can, but we could just, we could not do it as well. Okay, let's see. I thought um, we were going to talk about music and bureaucracy. Well, we could do that in a bit. Do you think you've got a love addiction? Is that why you said it? Mm. He's nodding. <laughs> yeah. But do you think... Well, it might take, if, if we're going to be podcasting about it, my take on it is that... Um, nobody is free of addiction, mm. that the economy is driven by people, you know, attempting to meet their needs in an unsustainable way through mm. consuming things, getting into debt, forming quite unhealthily small social networks, you know, like little nuclear families, mm. eating really bad food, etc. You know, uh, powerful men all seemed to have behaviours that appear to be very um, addicted. Because it just puts people in a difficult position if they decide they want to stop being, if they stop want to doing destructive behaviours. So say you, you're like, fuck, you, you take stock of your life and you look at it and you say, okay, my relationship seems to be having more negative than positive consequences. The way I use money seems to be a bit of a problem. Or I'm taking too much of this substance. Mm. Or I'm working too hard. Or, you know, on an individual level, any of the other kinds of behavioural substance financial addic addictive patterns people have. If you start trying to really get deep into it and change those behaviours, it can put you in a really strange situation because it's hard to know when to stop. Like, when, when am I no longer acting in that way? Yeah. I guess if you're never, never getting into debt, never taking illicit substances in a destructive way, always in a relationship which is really well balanced, it, it's, it starts to become hard to really articulate what a healthy life is. I think people have a kind of rough idea of it and then people broadly know when they meet someone if that person is an addict or not because they tend to have an energy around them that is quite unpleasant <laughs> or like intense, especially if you get the wrong end of it. Uh, you know, like everyone knows that Justin Bieber is a bit of an addict because he takes loads of coke and he's like nine hours late for his show and storms <laughs> off after the opening. You know, when he hears someone in the audience offend him, or, you know, that's, 
right, right, or we right. think of as an addict or something. But I guess, all right, the thing about addiction that really interests me is the violence mm. that actually, for me, if you're going to explore something, it's good to look at the extremes of a situation because um, then you, you kind of turn the volume up and you can really see what's going on. You know, so with addiction, you really enter into the world of cultural violence because the term is very medicalized and it's often mm. talked about like pejoratively um, using diagnostic pseudoscientific terms. Like mm. people talk about addicts like there's a kind of disease when actually scientifically it isn't really a disease at all. Like diseases are things that you can see in a brain scan or you can find in the blood, whereas addiction doesn't really have any of those measuring um, measurable components. And so then you start to discuss okay, so why is it that it's labelled in that way in America and places like that? Well, actually, all of that terminology was born in the in the era of temperance and sobriety, which was a very moralistic Christian period when they're trying to abolish alcohol and all that stuff. So what you've got there is this mishmash of medicine, uh, you know, psychological well-being and religion and politics and moralism. Uh, and so then if you start to explore addiction, you realise that treatment, often involves people overcoming their own experiences of like really intense violence. It's very rare to find someone in like a 12-step group or who's like looking at their addictions who hasn't experienced some kind of like trauma. trauma. Yeah, yeah, traumatic invasion of some kind, right? Um, or if you take cultures that have been like really traumatised by colonialism, often you'll find that they've got real issues with things like alcoholism, and, mm. um, you know, money and all that kind of stuff, right? So, so then... It's interesting that... In a way, if you looked at it like I'm just thinking of Michel Foucault or something, what his his yeah. kind of genealogy of crime and punishment is that surely there would be there would have been a previous stage in which like addiction would have been purely moral, mm. and then the recategorizing it of disease is almost like a progressive yeah. stance, like yeah. a modernizing stance, yeah. Yeah. where like oh these people aren't yeah. morally bad, they have yeah. like a physical disease, so yeah. it takes it out of the realm of rational. Yeah. Or it's an existentialist choice, yeah. existential choice, and puts it into the realm of medicalizable, treatable, yeah. modern. Yeah. But it's just like crime, right? These people aren't bad, they're just fucking mentally deficient or whatever. Yeah. And then maybe there's a, maybe there's a next stage where it's, I don't know, like, yeah, understood as a response to trauma. Well, yeah. But so then that's still like a Yeah, that is, that's still thing, part right? of the disease model yeah. generally. Like, you're traumatized, there's something wrong with you. You're the forefront now seems to be around telling people there's nothing really wrong with them, they have agency, that most people recover from addiction more or less by themselves with mm. quite idiosyncratic help from friends and family. So if you take smoking, which is one of the hardest addictions to quit, mm. most people just stop. Most people don't have to go to <laughs> rehab or like wear a patch or, wear a patch or anything, yeah. really. They're just Something happens usually that makes them really fucking want to stop and then they stop and often their friends will be like, don't smoke, you know, when they're pissed, their friends will snatch the cigarette yeah. out. Of you know, they get a little bit of help from their friends. And so that tends to be, there are figures like Stanton Peel, Mark Freeman, Marshall Rosenberg, who just died, Tara Brock, these weird figures on the edges who are quite militant about removing the idea of disease and the idea of the chronic ill person with a hole in their soul mm. from the treatment of addiction. What also interests me, coming back to music and stuff, is the relationship between music as a kind of high energy experience, particularly the kind of music we're kind of interested in. Intense dance music, pop music, metal, mm. subcultural music. There is 
within that there is music which is kind of gentle and beautiful but like high energy music and then subcultures like the rave scene or chicago footwork uh or drill dubstep techno etc addiction within that scene or drug use mm. um and so i haven't really thought about this out loud but someone like dj rashad who was one of the pioneers of chicago footwork died in like 2014 i think of a cocaine and xanax cocktail and when you listen to that music, it's so fucking full on, you know, and like a lot of the really powerful contemporary rappers from Atlanta, Georgia, all have this like notorious addiction to that cough syrup mixture yeah. that they, they drink all the time, right? And there's this funny relationship between kind of good addiction and the energy of these people who make this kind of music um, that I also, I've also found in my own life that I sometimes have to choose between like spending time on mental health recovery well-being stuff because I feel like I'm gonna like really tip into a horrible place yeah. or like sitting down and doing music yeah that it's hard to do them both at the same time I mean you can kind of make loads of songs about recovery like those folk musicians did when they went to rehab and stuff but often you know the, like, the real high energy stuff you often just need to absolutely go for it you know and then footwork super just on that footwork thing I didn't realize he died of his annex and coke yeah overdose I've yeah. got a friend who is an addict and he's a wonderful guy and he used to, his favourite thing that we used to do was ketamine and coke yeah. he was he called it normal because <laughs> yeah. it made you feel normal yeah. and like cocaine and Xanax surely that's a similar yeah. thing like you take loads of Xanax and you like zone out and then you have yeah. to take the coke and it gets yeah. you up but footwork's interesting right because it's it's at the what's the word it's at the tempo of drum and bass mm. but it's got the pace of hip hop mm. like the beat of hip hop even though it's like fucking jabbering around yeah. everywhere 160 yeah exactly so it's like um, me and a friend made an entropy mixtape a while ago and that was one of the things we knew it had to be on there like footwork is entropy it's like stasis it's mm. just staying still it's like going really 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 fast but like it's also super slow mm. it's like a really weird form of music so it makes perfect sense that you would take coke mm. and Xanax for yeah. it. I don't know why yeah it just works so one of the, one of the if, you, if you're looking at an idea like success if you want to be successful that doesn't map perfectly onto being healthy and well that often people can use the desire to be healthy and well as a kind of weird self-sabotage. Mm, well, go on, say more about that. Well, again, you can decide that you've had enough of drinking too much or having no money. or You can decide that you've had enough of being misogynistic or other, other things that are deemed as bad, right? And then decide you're going to... Say you're a musician or something like that and you want to you wanna be, like, healthy and well. But what if your music's really driven by, like a lot of dark, difficult energy. If you really turn up the knob on well-being, then you're going, to lo you're going to lose a lot of that energy and you're going to spend a lot of time in therapy and going to meetings and talking about all that stuff and reading books and attacking yourself. And often what I've found, again, coming back to this kind of violent medical idea, because so much of the treatment that's on offer for addiction is quite weaponized. It is this idea that there's something wrong with you mm. and you're ill and you need to change. The often people who step into that space, they end up, it's kind of a bit like chemo. Yeah. yeah having yeah. like really important bits of their culture, their personality, you know, their sense of taste really removed <laughs> with the addiction. So it can be a kind of self-sabotage in a way. It depends how you want to look, look at it. Because you, you were talking about addiction as an economy, right? Like you make, you choose, you talk, start, use the example of love and everything else drops away, so you stop working as much, you don't see your friends as much, you don't see your family as much. Like, yeah. you're building up debts, you mentioned debts. Yeah. And so, like, in the parlance of addiction therapy or medicalised addiction treatment, yeah, what you're getting is, like, 
you're looking at your accounting for your life and you're thinking, okay, like, addiction costs me this much. Yeah. So I'm going to have to, like, pay so much back. Like, yeah. you know, I'm going to have to delete bits of myself in order to yeah. not be an addict. Yeah. And it's, and like, I guess those people who go through that process are like, I think that's worth it. Yeah, some of them. Yeah, it's complicated. David Lynch is someone who who went... You know, he, his early days, he was drinking a lot. Was he? Quite unhinged. Yeah. And then he went to the 12 steps and stuff. You know? Ah. Um, you, you probably can't... so into the transcendental yeah. meditation thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a cult. More, uh, I don't want to get into the cult chat. It's another big chat. <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly a cult. My, my quick and dirty definition of a cult is they offer esoteric knowledge in exchange for money and or autonomy. And with, as far as I'm aware, the the trademark transcendental meditation thing you need to give them dosh in exchange oh, right. for the esoteric knowledge mm. um, and there's probably like some leader I don't know whatever wait I don't want to talk, talk about it that's different but music because I was just going back through you you started off doing loads of music on Instagram yeah. hashtag banger a day yeah and then turned some of that music into a mixtape yeah. called Punishment yeah so it was a song a one it's for Instagram so it's one minute with a piece of music, with sometimes with lyrics or words, and then a video. One of those a day, released every day for, a, I can't remember exactly how many it was, it was about two months. I think I ended up doing about 60. It was an incredible experience, really positive experience, really good. Within that though, yeah, there was a bit of self, self it wasn't self-sabotage per se, it was just self-destructive, like I wasn't sleeping always. The thing is about them, that from an artistic perspective, they answered a question I've had for a while about where theatre might end up. Yeah. So they have a lot of theatricality to them, which is cool. There's a point about halfway through where I started appearing in them. Yeah. Because I didn't really know what I was doing. So the first. So they start off with lots of YouTube clips, right? Yeah, it was like people driving cars around, mosquitoes being born and stuff like that. Julian Assange being arrested. Uh, what else? A man walking in the rain, you know. And then basically the internet went at my studio. Oh, it's <laughs> what <laughs> And so I was like, fuck, you know, it was 11 at night or something. And then I had to do one for midnight. That was my little mental rule. And I was like, shit, fuck. So I just recorded myself singing it. And that one's Lawrence, the bald ghost. Yeah. <laughs> Lawrence. Lawrence. Which is one of my favorite. Ones. Yeah, that's really good. Bald, bald ghost. Wanted to meet you in waxes on the boring side. Huh? Oh, it's not fair, Lawrence. Bored growth, but it's not fair. Come to my home and spit bucks then on my hands. There are certain themes, but one of them is certainly prostitution. Okay. Um, that if there is such a thing as an archetype, then there is probably an archetype of a prostitute. Mm. And that's an archetype with which I'm somewhat familiar. Around that time, I, was, I wasn't working as a prostitute, but I had friends and old friends, you know. Anyway, I was hanging out with people who were doing it and stuff. And so that song, Lawrence the Bald Ghost, is about a guy who was a client who didn't show up 
he, go, he ghosted my friend who turned up at the studio. <laughs> and then I made that song with, like sort of sat there and asked her the story and then wrote down very quickly what she said and then just sang, sang it. Yeah. There's this bloke who wanted to meet her in Waxies in Soho. What's Waxies? It's a uh, pub. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted to meet her in this pub and he wanted her, she's a kind of dom, dominatrix, he wanted her to insult him really loud for a long time in, like, <laughs> in front of all these other people. In the post-work drink period when there's lots of yeah. office workers around in the pub, he wanted to sit there and be humiliated in front of um, Soho professionals. Yeah. So, anyway, but that's the thing about those videos, they were all very diaristic, because there's one a day, so they were just capturing what was happening to me and or friends or lovers in that period. Yeah, it's weird though, because like, I know you as a person, but obviously looking at those videos, there's this other kind of character that emerges, which I'm sure is real in the sense it's based on bits of your life, but it's like a very particular character and like the theatricality of it is that you start ima like imagining a world in which this character exists. Because you obviously you're only broadcasting the bits of your life that are like the extreme intense bits, like mm. you're not broadcasting whatever, travelling around, going to work and stuff. Mm. I was talking about how loads of people are suddenly becoming, like, exposing themselves as, like, right-wing fascists or misogynists, or they're saying, like, really terrible things. And I was thinking about heterosexuality as this kind of, like, kind of sexuality that's, like, based on not being, or covering up shame or something, or, or hiding from the possibility of humiliation. And so, therefore, a lot of, like, perverse heterosexual desire is about, like, shame and humiliation. And, like, what could be more humiliating than, like, suddenly announcing to all your friends and family online or in person that you're a fucking racist, misogynist, reactionary wanker. And I realised that, like, just you talking about this guy wanting someone to shout, like, humiliate him in a pub at after-work drinks, it's, like, so linked to the culture of, like, uh, being called out. But now, whenever I see someone being, like, called out or, like, found out about, like, some terrible shit they've did, I just think, oh, they just did it for, like, the... There's some kind of, like jouissance happening there where it's all like explodes they just it's like them coming all over their friends and family with this humiliation so you're saying that a lot of men who are violent have within them this sort of semi-conscious sense of shame mm. that they then on one level try to make real in the world through doing things that are likely to get people to shout at them yeah exactly and yeah. then when there's a sudden <laughs> orgasm of punishment and shame yeah Although they might feel bad on one level and their career has ended, they've also confirmed the fact that they're actually a turd. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're, uh, in a weird way, their self-esteem, i.e. their idea of themselves, has been confirmed. And that is more important mm. to most people than feeling good or bad at any one time. It's what, it's what the psychopath test. Oh, yeah. The, the One of the main professors, experts on psychopaths who's interviewed, says that every single psychopath he's ever studied in his career came, behaved in extraordinary ways. Many of the things they were doing were quite different, but every single one of them had a very profound sense of shame burning in their soul. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, um, briefly, might not go deep into this, Big gossipy, but there's a an acquaintance, not a close friend of mine, but sort of in my network, someone who's got a lot of rape accusations around them. You know, not just one, but like loads. Right. Yeah. And I don't know them that well, but we we were kind of dealing with each other a bit before I found out. And 
strangely, the thing I, that struck me the most interacting with this fellow was how he, appear, he appeared to be very ashamed of himself. Mm. It's really striking in our relationship, like the way he was holding his body and talking and posing ideas, very submissive almost. Okay, right? but, not, but not, he wasn't talking about things he was ashamed of, he was just came across he just, as... It's just, it just struck me, we were talking yeah. about this topic, I was kind of putting some stuff together with him, working with him, there was just this really weird energy around it, a lot of submissive, shameful stuff, and then it all fizzled out, partly because I heard about all this crazy stuff sure. from all these females who interacted with him. Yeah. And it, my first response was like, what, that guy? Because, you know... Generally, when we think of rape, we think of extremely dominant, alpha, confident. Yeah. Men. But of course, mm. and there's a fact that like a lot of rape culture tends to happen in the darkness and the shadows in very shameful ways. And people who are really committed to that kind of behaviour, they're going to have all kinds of like, uh, not ways of hiding it. That sounds a bit deliberate. Def deflective characteristics and stuff like that. I think this Being comes back to the yeah. conversation about addiction, right? Like, we haven't got ways of talking about, I guess, for want of a... Oh, that's the right phrase, isn't it? Like, toxic masculinity that aren't either, like, highly moral or completely, like, medicalised. Yeah. I like, yeah, he's a psychopath or... Yeah. He's a, like, bad man. Like, they're yeah. the two ways of talking about it and yeah. we're going to need to get over those ways of talking about it pretty quick. Toxic is a metaphor. It's negative it's what you don't want rather than what you do want but it's also yes semi-medical sounds kind of like science yeah 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 but actually you can't actually pin a scientific kind of objective thing on it yeah and probably most there's all of that stuff which you find in addiction and crime and punishment everywhere but i think the thing with toxic masculinity is it's very likely to make people feel ashamed and scared and when people, again, when men feel ashamed and scared, tends not to result in compassionate behaviour. Yeah. Not really. Not like long-term committed, I'm willing to sacrifice things through compassion. Certainly, when I was younger, I'm 34 now, but when I was younger, in my teens, I was very toxic. You know, I used to do all kinds of crazy violence. And I was really ashamed of myself. I felt like such a horrible, broken, damaged mm. being. I was getting it from all sides, you know. And act, like, just channeling it back outwards mm. you know? and if i have become less nasty and violent which i probably have um it's through compassion really through um understanding what happens to me and understanding why i was doing those things i don't really like mm. and spending quite a lot of time money creative work art stuff therapy stuff spiritual stuff being kind looking at it the basic principle i think is this that when they were first studying gorillas, they would take weapons with them and the gorillas would pick up on that and not really show these primatologists much intricate information about like their... Like they take weapons to protect themselves? Yeah, so early okay. primatologists would take a lot of weaponry and a quite kind of colonial attitude into the midst of the gorillas. Ah. And the gorillas would pick up on this energy and therefore not really show that much about their reality to these primatologists. This is kind of a metaphor, right? As primatol as in the sixties, people got more into like you know compassion and all that stuff, and, uh, post colonialism and stuff. People, mm. you'd have more radical primatologists just turning up in like a t-shirt, with a much more compassionate energy. And at that point, they really started to understand gorillas properly because the gorillas no longer saw them as a threat. Therefore, they would show them more intimate sides of themselves, yeah. bits of their culture that they'd hidden from the perceived aggressors. And I think that's really important if you're going to do some kind of massive work on yourself. 
mm. or try and affect change in people that you know, you really need to go in there without a weapon. Mm. You can't go in like, why am I such a piece of shit? What the fuck's wrong with me? Like, mm. why am I so broken? Because you're not really going to find the truth and it's going to freak you out and there's bits of your brain that engage when you're freaked out are going to hide things. You know? mm. But if you can really try and just explore why, why do I act that way? Like really, what what need am I trying to get? What emotion is driving that? I might not like the behaviour, but I understand it's happening. Okay, then you start if you can like meditate on it and talk to people about it and let people in. You start to really see things, and usually the way it works is if you're a bit more conscient, a bit more conscious of something, you tend to be able to release it and relax it more. Mm. You know, if you suddenly notice you're breathing, oh, I've been holding my breath for <laughs> ages, shit. You know, you just kind of bring awareness to it and stuff like that, which might be something that. That might be something that music and art and stuff is quite good for. Yeah. It can sort of shine a light. It can theoretically shine a light on bits of human experience that otherwise get hidden from us by moralistic, maybe political, criminal charges. You can mm. kind of express and explore things in a way that normally you'd get in trouble. <laughs> you know, like Acid House and stuff. You'd kind of get in trouble if you tried to say that stuff mm. to your family you can kind of express it if you've got a generator and some rolling drum machines and an empty <laughs> warehouse somewhere. <laughs> and then the police come and tell you, you know, you get in trouble and then it'll yeah. get shut down. Yeah. And the expression stops, yeah. The thing that I thought was really interesting was all the singing done yeah. by you or done by your collaborators is almost always in like a really quiet voice, either in over like a WhatsApp message or into the laptop microphone. Mm. And it might be processed or it might be effect, you know, delay yeah. or auto-tune and stuff. But it's always this, like, really unsteady voice. And you've been interested in voice for a while. You made, like, another kind of mixtape podcast thing that was focused on voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been interested in that for a while. It is good. There's life and hope the One way of saying it is this, that is Bob Fosse who said this. He said that when we are too emotional to speak, we sing. And when we're too emotional to sing, we dance. Mm. That was the idea. So what often happens, I found, with my singing, or the singing I seem to do in my work with other people as well, is that it's that point just past speaking. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. So like the threshold, so I'm speaking now, but then if I start... <laughs> To do that, then it's sort of basically speaking, right? But it's kind of like, it's probably partly from Essex and growing up around, working in a lot. My parents were opera singers, so. Oh, were they? Yeah, I grew up, my mum used to, she's soprano, my dad was a bass, so. Wow. I grew up with like a lot of racket, <laughs> especially from my mum, singing and shouting at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was her shouting quite like beautiful? Like, Michael! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the work, that was my parents, but my work when I was working after school, I got jobs and, you know, like I lived around the airport, so I was working in a lot of the warehouses, the um, post office and stuff. And a lot of the men there, it was quite compressed, so you wouldn't, there wasn't really singing, not really. It was just a lot of like funny chat. But then every now and then it breaks through just past that point and the mm. way it usually sounds, you get it a bit with football chants. Yeah, sure. Football chants are kind of, they're really loud and bodily 
I love them actually. I think they're really cool and a really interesting lineage of English poetry. Yeah. Because they're fucking very like Chaucerian and stuff. Very witty a lot. Anyway, that still isn't that far from speaking. The the proximity to like none of those guys would be like, oh yeah, I'm a singer. I go down and do football chants on Sunday. <laughs> you know, singing like has all these like techniques and Adele is a singer. Oh, well, I mean, the so best example of that is opera, right? Opera, opera is yeah. as far away from normal speech as you could get. Yeah, because you have to sing unamplified across a full orchestra. Yeah. In a, <laughs> in a like, enclosed space. Yeah, and all of these, like, particular stylistic features, the vibrato. Or yeah, the, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, also, the thing I have with, you know, I suppose with what you could call anxiety and stuff like that, there's, like, quite a lot of inner obstacles between me and creativity and stuff. I just need, there's certain times in my life where I'm able to just sing and that tends to be like, sometimes I, I'm there in the, in the studio and all the stars are lined up properly and I've got the condenser mic out and it's all ready to go straight into Ableton and all that stuff. But more often than not, <laughs> I'm on the train or something like that uh, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to sing this thing to my friend or, you know, I'll my, ask my friend for a vocal very quickly for, yeah. for one of the bangers. He'd be like, fuck, I need a vocal. Eloise, send me a vocal and she'd sing something into WhatsApp and then I put it on, you know, yeah. with a little bit of auto-tune or something. So really what I'm talking about, if I'm trying to be honest, is that there's also that, there's, there's that theoretical stuff about, yeah, you know, there's speech and then when you get a bit more emotional, you start to get into singing, but I don't want to go fully into that. I just want that point where speech is being broken by mm. the intensity of the experience. And, you mm. know, that tends to have this kind of strange, compressed sexual repression, warbly quality, which is quite like mythical and strange and Essexy. I could say all that, but also it's just that like I've fucked a lot of my life up and I haven't got a lot of time and <laughs> <laughs> often I have to just like STD baby seize the day and then just like <laughs> sing straight into uh, sing straight into my phone or you know use like very rapid lo-fi things and I haven't ever really had to sing unless that all kind of mishmashes together into a kind of truth which is what they kind of call DIY culture which I think is yeah. quite valuable I think because culture is very saturated and because individualism has robbed a lot of artistic practice of kind of political power mm. and all these other things, I think if it takes itself too seriously, it's just a bit naive and embarrassing, mm. that kind of stuff. So I find it embarrassing. There's an immediacy to it that would be lost if you started yeah. re-recording all the vocals or something. Right? On a mental health level, if I start taking myself too seriously, I completely seize up. I yeah. can't do anything at all and become very, very low and quite useless to everyone. Uh, so also I have to try and get in a state of mind where I don't really worry about anything too much. Yeah. And then yeah. I can do all the things I need to do, like see my family and teach and make music and chat to you and all that shit. Yeah. The, there's something interesting about the technology as well, because I was thinking a lot about, actually, the reason I think about this is because I read uh, Dan Hancock's book on grime, which is good, really good. Mm. And he mentioned something that I'd, I really like about grime, which is loads of those sounds came from this free French bit of software called Plug, Plug Sound, I think oh, it was cool. called. It's just one like little software instrument that you could use through Fruity Loops and it had all like the kind of orientalist like like mid uh, eastern hmm. string sounds and That's stuff cool. that get used yeah and all the drum sounds as well um so it's like these particular technologies make a particular sound hmm. and also that um grime was at 140 bpm because Fruity Loops that's its default tempo hmm. so if you open up Fruity Loops you just start playing with it and I wonder whether Grimes like the last music because it's just it's just before I'm talking about the early Grime. It's just before the internet opens everything up and makes you know you don't have to use Fruity Loops anymore on a CD that you got off your brother's mate because you can just download 
logic or what pro tool whatever you want like and you can get every vst ever because it's all free because you can get cracked versions of it but i wonder whether there's still something in your music which is being like produced by the possibilities of the technological infrastructure so there's youtube and the quickness of whatsapp like voice messages which is how a lot of people communicate as well it's like not even just that it's it's something that you've discovered it's like you discovered it because you already use it i assume for like chatting to people and stuff mm. as well so, but what's weird about it is that you also have like a condenser mic and yes yeah, some like i know you've got like monitor speakers and somewhere you can record and stuff like that so it's it's kind of it's like hard to talk about in the same way that like you could talk about jungle and about the samplers that they use because they did this time stretching thing you know that that sound we all can hear it and then link it to a bit of kit or something but like now it's it's much harder to link stuff to a particular bit of kit but there's something i'm still trying to get i don't know what the question is but like I can tell you what I can tell you what some of the kit is that I was making. Yeah, the bangs do. On. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, because I think you sounds like you're asking a bit about creative limitations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how those are really liberating. Yeah, they always have been, but particularly now, um, having so the limitations were one a day, a minute long, Instagram, so it has to be one to one ratio with the film, like the clip, and then I have a copy of Ableton. I have my QWERTY keyboard. So, you know, that's how I'd play the melodies. Oh, is it? Which means a lot of them are... I can't remember what key it is in by default. It's something like E major or something like that. It'll be... C, C, I mean, it's just the white keys of a keyboard running yeah. there, but then you've got the black keys as well. Yeah, but, but I never really used those. <laughs> uh, and then also I was quite... I was ever so busy. <laughs> so <laughs> I, was going around, I was going around teaching a lot and going to parties and things. And yeah. so often the, the big limitation was that I'd have in the daytime to find something kind of interesting that would that was worth including in it because there's lots of samples of like either speeches or people yeah. chatting or yeah yeah like someone singing from yeah and, and then like so there are fucking loads of limitations so find the interesting thing get the laptop out play a little melody program a beat in there it's got a beat sample something if it needs to sample film something edit it on a copy of uh, adobe premiere the big thing is like is this relevant I'm How quite, do you judge if it's relevant then? Well, you can't, can you, objectively? But I just, um, I like to think that if someone engages with those videos, then it speaks, even if we're really overwhelmed by politics and our feelings of, like, anxiety and hopelessness and things like that, that you can kind of have that music within that world rather than, like, enough of this Brexit stuff. Mm. I'm gonna escape into this music. You know, yeah. I find so for me. I'm quite. I'm like, I can often be that grumpy guy. You know, with their arms folded at the back, being like, "Why is everyone dancing? This is bullshit." You know, this is just. Um, yeah, Adam Curtis really ruined a lot of culture for me. Like, <laughs> about ten years stuff, about yeah. ten years ago. Yeah, he really. He's. I think he's a really blocked artist who hates creativity. <laughs> So it's quite, he's quite risky to like listen to him too much. And he, think, he flirts with loads of people. He's very flirty. He takes you for a drink and flirts with you. <laughs> I think he's. <laughs> you're like rubbing your face. Flirty Adam <laughs> Curti. Um, I think Adam Curtis is really creative as an yeah, individual. Yeah. But I just think it's mad that people repeat his arguments without all the amazing footage and music that's behind. What I don't fucking care. Yeah. What he's saying, if it doesn't have the music and the imagery. Yeah. 
So anyway, what am I going to do? So you, you think that... So basically a problem I've... That's not really a problem, but... I'm just interested to know what to do next, because... Well... Okay, you, you said you were going to make songs about bureaucracy. Let's talk about that. Yeah. But then you did... But I don't know if that's actually honest, because I don't... So one of the things I think that's a pitfall is that you can really easily get funded now by making something that's about something. And that kind of puts representation into a bit of an awkward position. So, you know, it's it's very English as well. You know, like, I'm going to write a play about the Holocaust. <laughs> and it's going to have loads of actors. And they'll all be the Jews, and then we'll have some actors being the Nazis. You know, and it's about this thing. And Europe and other cultures have been a lot better at destabilizing the representation. So you're not, it's not really about something, it is something. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, yeah. so, like, yeah, I kind of want to explore bureaucracy but the part of the reason I want to do that is because I tried really for the first time in my life about a year ago to fill out an arts council form. And the idea was to make a big thing about bureaucracy. And I filled out this form and it took a long time and my friends helped me and stuff. And I was like, oh, I might as well just fucking try and do it. And then, <laughs> you know, you see how it affects your thinking. Like you fill out a form and you say, this is what the work is going to be about. And yeah. then the people who read the form are like, I like what that's going to be about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have enough money that you don't have to worry about your rent for a year or something, you know. So then you're like, okay, Pavlovian response. Now I just have to pick these really juicy topics and stuff. But actually, I'm not, obviously the work needs to be about something relevant. I'm not saying that. It's just that for me, honestly, the stuff that's really interesting that I make, the people are like, whoa, that's cool. I like that one. I don't really think about what it's about. No. Except in a very semi-conscious way while I'm making it. So if you take some of the, the bangers that people like, I just made them against a very tight deadline based on like phoning people or chatting to people or being somewhere. And at the end, there's a kind of theme. Yeah. But I think one of the reasons also that you've got a feeling of dread is that they're quite unstable formally. Yeah. They don't entirely behave themselves. They're not really a music video and they're not really an Instagram post and they're not really a song. Although most of them have a kind of formal coherence, they kind of work as a form. So there's a there's a anxiety-inducing instability in the way that the theme is transmitted. Yeah. And that's more what interests me. But then what I'm trying to express now is that, yeah, I want to explore bureaucracy because we're fucking swimming in it, but it's only because of bureaucracy that I articulate it in that way. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I, I would like to explore bureaucracy. Yeah, 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 I see what you mean. Uh, so to do this, this is the equipment I am going to need. <laughs> this is how the cost will be broken down. <laughs> so would you carry on doing it on Instagram or would you try and do it outside of that? Truthfully, I don't know. I'm no good at... I have... Some people seem very... Some people are very good at expressing the future and making it happen. Uh, for various reasons, I'm not. I could really confidently tell you what I'm going to do, but I'd just be fronting. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, I haven't got a clue. Yeah. Uh, the bangers came out of nowhere, man. Yeah. Literally. I was working with you in the spring... Well, early spring. I just, I broke up with someone. We were in love for a few years, ended the relationship. The night, actually, that the relationship ended in Macedonia, I stayed up late and bought a MacBook on debt, on credit, <laughs> on finance. <laughs> and then it kind of arrived, like, pretty much as I got back to London. Yeah. And then with that, I got, I came across a copy of Ableton yeah. Yeah, and a copy nice. of Adobe Premiere. And within, yeah. not that, it was like a week or two after that, I'd started making all these videos and then not long after I'd started putting them up and then not long after that, the buffer had kind of finished. I made like nine or something in advance with this idea that I could somehow schedule them all <laughs> and like go about my life. But then it, 
very quickly became literally like frontline every single day have to make a new thing yeah um like djing is like dj so I was, lis- I was listening to a bloke called Romeo Castellucci yesterday, who's a really good theatre director from Italy, who's part of a big collective. He's not that big in England. His work's good, and he's interesting to listen to, although there aren't that many interviews. He speaks in Italian and French. He just literally just doesn't translate very well to England. I'm imagining because of the funding structures here, the language stuff. He comes over sometimes, but mostly his work happens in Europe, right? And he's just hardly heard of here. Like the National Theatre doesn't have any books books about him, but he's like one of the main... He's one of the very... He's like the Gerhard Richter of theatre or something. Oh, right. Okay. You know, like he's... Painting is kind of dead, but Gerhard Richter somehow makes it work or something, you know. Maybe edit that out. A bit of an oversimplification. <laughs> so anyway, fuck it, what was I saying? He was talking about how if you're working as an artist, then you need to always be challenging yourself and not just pick up the same old familiar tools because mm. that's a form of basically like onanism that it, if you're really trying to test yourself, which is more likely to lead to interesting, useful art for other people, maybe I will just continue. Like, I'll have a, a, a bit of time and I'll continue making those bangers, I think. I don't know, but it's probably better if I just stop, relax, forget about it, and mm. just see what happens next. I don't know how to put this stuff into words, it's too unknown. But I just think it's risky for someone to be like, oh, that was cool, that worked, I'm just going to carry on doing that. I think that's a bit risky. I just don't think humans are designed to be like that, really. We're quite nomadic. We're always suffering and faced with these crises that require completely new solutions. Just like we've never had to face a crisis like this before. That seems to be our, like we're condemned to that kind of existence, right? And plus also the way you spoke about buying the MacBook and stuff suggests to me that you're... You had a sudden like outpouring of energy, yeah. Anyway, yeah. and it went into the, it happened yeah. to these. Yeah, I, I'm, I always, my, my energy is always pouring, but it's just, it's quite unreliable as to where it's going. Mm. It's a bit like in a film when like the guy joins the sci-fi army and he's get given this weapon and then it's like doesn't really know how to fire it and it just like shoots off oh, all in right, different yeah, directions. Like, like yeah, the comedy, the, the yeah, comedy yeah. moment in the sci-fi when the guy's yeah. like, Doof! and he accidentally shoots a robot and it like falls off into yeah. space or something. <laughs> so, yeah, just I've got energy all the time, and it's just that sometimes it seems to line up in a way that benefits my career, <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes it's just like, whoa, cool, I'm totally doing this thing right now, and that's just a private life. That's just private. That's yeah. just no one's really ever going to know that that happened. Yeah. But for me, in my personal experience this thing's incredibly important that just seems to be how it goes man and maybe over time i'll learn how to be really professional and like always have my energy accumulating um likes and followers and cultural capital and money and stuff like that but then i also on a level i'm happy to have quite a wild energy that sometimes is public facing and sometimes just like vanishes for a while because i like like the a lot of my the, the artists i like have all been a bit like that yeah i find that on a personal level, I find that satisfying that there are people who get depressed and just don't do anything for 20 years, you know, or, you know, don't really begin doing their stuff until they're 40. Those kinds of people, they, they really appeal to me on a personal level because mm. that's what my life's been like, mm. you know. I've had, like, really, really dark periods <laughs> and then I find it as satisfying as the work itself. You know, I love listening to certain kinds of music, but then I also love knowing that this poem was written by like a woman who didn't get anywhere, you know, for ages and ages and ages and ages. Because that's, that's my life experience. It's the life experience of a lot of really close friends of mine as well. Mm. You know? 
just like inconsistency, moments of weakness, folly, crawling through the muck, the goals that you kind of set yourself that are completely absurd and then evaporate into nothing. And suddenly, unexpectedly, you appear to make it, but not really. Oh, and, yeah. you know, <laughs> or you make it and it absolutely destroys your life. You know, yeah. you vanish. Like the catcher in the rye, the guy who wrote that, J.D. Oh, Salinger. Yeah. yeah, just like vanished, right? He couldn't handle it at all. It's like never did anything again. Can we listen to one of my songs and talk about it? What should we do? The one with the cool centre woman. Michelle at the co-op, lost and stolen. Morning, Michelle. Um, I phoned up earlier because my cards, I'd found it and you said the process was already initiated. Do you remember? It was like half an hour ago. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit weird, but I wonder, can you put me on hold? Because the hold music's really good and I want to record it so I can make a song out of it. Is that impossible? <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do that, but I will place you on hold while I check with my manager. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Michelle. Okay, I'm not allowed to do that, so I need to terminate the call now okay thank you very much goodbye Bye. so that song was i'd been losing all my stuff a lot in april may as part of this euphoric explosion of (laughs) making all this music i was also losing a lot of stuff like my bike got stolen twice and two bikes in one week like i got on replacing it got it i like my wallet my passport driving license key, keys no i didn't lose my keys coats clothes just loads of stuff like was just going it's like loads of energy coming out right? and so what that one was about was i was like fuck i've lost my card in fact you're like bank card yeah my yeah. bank card in fact i realized the reason i made that phone call to the woman is i cancelled it and then i went to the gym in the evening and i found it <laughs> i'd like left it in the fucking in the card thing in the gym like in the card reader thing and it was still there so I went back and got it and the next morning phoned up on the way to the studio it was like 7 in the morning and I think that the shift finished I think that was the very end of the night shift for the British lady I don't know why I think that it was something about I knew that the main call centre opened at something like 8 and this was at about 7.30am and I was on the way to the studio Something like that. So it's kind of important to know that she's been up for a long time, this lady. Um, and I called her and the hold music. I was just like, wow, oh, it's such a banger, that music. I was walking to the studio through Tottenham Marshes. And I was like, fucking amazing. So I got this idea to call her back. So I got to the studio very quickly, like plugged everything in and just like held the phone up on speakerphone and then just recorded. I was just like, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I was phoned up with Cooperative Bank, Lost and Stolen. Hey, hello, Michelle, lost and stolen. I was like, hey, it's me again. And she's like, hello. Oh, I think that's it's such a beautiful yeah. performance on her part. Yeah. If we're talking about bureaucracy or something. Yeah, like, right. Where you, where you can feel like you're controlled by these systems a lot. Yeah. Like you're forced to listen to whole music. You're forced to press yeah, yeah. buttons in response yeah. to something because you're forced to have a bank card yeah. in the first place. Yeah. But then this really beautiful moment where she's like, she la- yeah. I can't remember how she, what's the order? She laughs and then she says... I'm not sure I'll be able to do that. Yeah. But let me put you on hold well, while I, ch- I listen to my manager. Well, I check my with my manager. manager. It's so good. Yeah. So what the thing is, right, if I am going to explore the theme of bureaucracy, 
then there are a few pitfalls. One is the bureaucracy is bad. That's really easy to just complain about it. Um, that's just not a particularly interesting approach, right? What's actually more cool is that it's just quite mystical and bizarre and funny. And we know bureaucracy is bad. But what might happen, if I'm lucky, is that there'll be a series of interactions and encounters with people and ideas and books and stuff like Dante or something where the concepts around bureaucracy can kind of be just played with and interacted with in a way a bit like that track I think when people yeah. listen to it they find it I'd say useful is a bit of a strange word they just find it enjoyable or like somehow it's I think it serves a quite like relaxing positive function yeah yeah, yeah which yeah, is yeah. like you know it's not that bad it's kind of and also Often when you're experiencing like some kind of oppression, which we all are, like that kind of power is like incredibly oppressive. There are all these like really ridiculous moments of resistance. <laughs> they're, so, they're quite futile and stuff, you know, but like they do bring meaning. Yeah, and I think for me, it's, it's the, the idea that bureaucracy is bad is like, it's more, it's more thinking about like how it makes people who they are. Like her little act of subversion or whatever is only possible because she's works in a fucking call centre at night like yeah. you say, like she's been up for yeah. probably like 16 hours or something. She's probably like at the end of her tether. Yeah. But she's also like a little bit hysterical or whatever. And that is only made possible by that shift work and by the fact that, yeah, she like has to go through, run through these systems for her job. Yeah. And I think that's like, I don't know if resistance is the right word there because I think yeah. it's, it is the person, your interaction is only even possible because of that. Yeah. I think that's kind of heartwarming in itself. Yeah. Like it, that's facilitated that interpersonal. Yeah. Moment there's a couple of kinds of representation that I really like. One of them's documentaries where the people making the documentary have spent a very, very, very long time getting to know the people in the documentary, like 10 years or more. And then, having got to know those people very well, the cameras can then be whipped on and catch these really strange, unstable interactions. That really always blows my mind, right? Because often documentaries, you just parachute in a documentary crew for a weekend film an interview or something and then leave and you don't really get such subtle weird interactions so there's that kind but then there's also the chance encounter i really love like representations of strange chance encounters like the idea that an image is kind of like a veil that you can't ever really truly see everything that's in that image or behind it chance encounters can have that quality mm. a bit like people watching or something you can just be having a burger looking out the window and you just see someone walking past in the wind in a certain way and it just has this extraordinary depth to it mm. there's something going on behind that so those those two kinds of representations particularly appeal to me you know like knowing someone really well for a long time and then just capturing something you know like that documentary the work that everyone mm. loves so what's that? Just to explain what that documentary is. Uh, the work is set in a prison. It's a it's a it's a, a workshop for men who are violent offenders, designed to make them learn how to not be violent anymore. It's very effective, uh, and it's been going for seventeen years. And the men who filmed it, it's, so it's in uh, Fulton Prison, and a lot of the people who are in the workshop are from the Aryan Brotherhood and the Bloods and Native American prison gangs, and they've done all kinds of crazy things like murdering people, cutting people in half with machetes and stuff, right? And the people who filmed it, these two lads who are the sons of the man who set the project up. So this guy who's the main therapist workshop leader, he had these two sons and he invited them to document it, but they had to go to the therapy group for 10 years to sit with all these men and get their trust. And then they film it for one weekend. It's, oh, really? It's filmed over a really short period? Yeah, they didn't know what they were going to get. 
because it's very unstructured the thing is like very free-flowing it just goes with whatever people want to bring in that moment so it's really brilliant it's that thing i'm talking about Mm. you've got a very long period of time of getting to know people extremely intimately and then like just getting lucky and just capturing stuff Mm. or more like what you just heard with michelle in the call center just this like really chance encounter that just kind of happens to go right yeah and you just you kind of get this sense of this like vast world behind this like very ephemeral fleeting interaction I mean, there's also the stuff, like, I'm also really into um, YouTube, like, people filming stuff and putting it on YouTube. You know, like, a lot of rap culture is, for a while, so the the, cult, the rap centres were really controlled by the music sector, the, industry, the record labels in New York and LA. And so places like Atlanta, Georgia, didn't really get much attention. The same thing happened with Grunge and Nirvana in Seattle. Like, what happens then is when the record labels and the attention is put in one place... The places that aren't getting a lot of attention develop these quite autonomous, independent, weird mm. scenes where people are paying for and producing and sharing and listening to stuff away from big record labels. And that's what happened at Atlanta, Georgia, right? So then you get this weird new trap stuff coming out of these these scenes that the record labels hadn't really clocked and then they will move there, right? Um, and that's another kind of representation I really like. And the internet's quite good at sharing that stuff autonomous people just like the arab spring power is kind of over here paying loads of attention to this thing and then suddenly from nowhere you get this huge outpouring of songs and videos and stories and stuff Mm. from a really unexpected quarter thanks so much to mikey you can find his mixtape punishment at uh, soundcloud.com forward slash mj harding yeah check out his instagram as well m.j.harding and yeah look out for new music and new projects from him soon all right i'll be back fairly soon with another one bye